In honor of the Holy Word of God, for those who are able, please rise with us as we read this morning from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray now that this very uh, deep passage uh, of your word uh, with so many things that we could consider and so many realities that go beyond even our, our ability to fully understand and grasp that you would help us to, to see and perceive um, Christ, that you would help us to see your love and your grace toward us, that you would help us to see the goodness of what you are saying to us in these words and what you are calling us to. Would you convince us of these things by the work of your spirit in our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
<clears throat> so uh, if you've been with us, we're in this uh, series called Revision uh, Week 5, and we've been seeking to lay out the vision uh, for Trinity, really, as we're moving into this next chapter together of our life at Trinity. What kind of church does God call us to be? And we've been saying uh, for a while now, and if you've been around Trinity the last few years, you've probably heard this language that God in Scripture calls his church to be Christ's beautiful church for the good of the world. That we are to be a people who are being made beautiful, who are being healed and restored and made whole in Jesus and reflecting the beauty of God to the world around us. We've sought to unpack the last uh, few weeks various aspects of this larger vision of becoming Christ's beautiful church. So we talked about hospitality, and then last week we talked about community, and today we're thinking about discipleship. Now there are so many things that we could say about discipleship, and if you've been with us this last year in our study of the book of Matthew, we focused a lot on discipleship, or we often talked about it as this apprenticing ourselves to Jesus. Learning not just information, but learning a, a way of life. But here's how I want us to think about discipleship this morning as we look at Colossians chapter 3. Discipleship is growing up into our true selves in Jesus. Discipleship is growing up into our true selves in Jesus. If you look at uh, the beginning of Colossians, and if you have the text in front of you, it would be really helpful. Um, the opening verses of Colossians 3, Paul shows us really what it means to be a Christian. And like so many other places in the Bible, it's, it's about a fundamental change to someone's identity or their, or their status. That those who believe and follow Jesus are those, verse 3, who have died with Christ. Verse 1, they've been raised with Christ. Verse 3, we're hidden in Christ. Verse 4, Christ is our life. This is what it means to be a Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, or if you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, th this is what it is. And Paul says, if that's you, then discipleship is really this growing up into who you are. And it's from this foundation, this identification with Jesus, being united to him and connected to him, that the rest of this passage really fleshes out what this life of following Jesus and growing up into wholeness looks like. So what I want to do this morning is think about what it looks like to grow up into our true selves in Jesus and four aspects needed if we're to grow up into our true selves. And these four that we're going to think about are we need community, we need to fight, we need to wear Jesus, and we need to practice this new life. So first, we, we need community. I'm going to be much more brief on this because, like I said, this was the subject of last week's uh, sermon. So you can go back and listen to that where we really thought about how community is something that we need, but it's also something that's really, really hard. But community is something that you can see all over this text. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we read it kind of like it's a personal letter written to us. So you could imagine, right, pulling out Colossians and reading through the book, and it's kind of like, yeah, what is this saying to me? Uh, and, that, you know, that's not wrong, but the New Testament letters are written to churches, and they would have been read aloud in a gathering like this one where we're at right now. That's the context in which these verses that were read would have been heard and thought about and applied. 
all the pronouns and the verbs addressed to the readers are in the plural, right? So um, I'm going to use a good uh, Southernism. So it's not you individual have been raised with Christ, but y'all have been raised with Christ and y'all have died with him. And verse five, therefore y'all put to death. Verse 12, therefore y'all clothe yourselves. Like this would have been viewed as a community project, as something that we were doing together. If you look at verse nine and 10 of the passage, Paul writes about the old self and the new self. And this is, let me just say, this is a really hard thing to translate. What's being said here to communicate really what Paul is saying, what's literally written is not self, but man. So it's not old self and new self. It's old man and new, but that's not really much more clear for most of us. What Paul is saying here, he's not primarily talking about individual transformation, like you used to be this person and now you're this person, but he's talking about a collective. It's about whether you're a part of the old humanity in Adam or you're a part of this new humanity in Christ. And this new humanity we read about in verse 10 and 11 is a humanity that is united and being made whole in Jesus, that's being renewed after the image of its creator. A new humanity where the, the old dividing markers of race or you know, your family's religion or nationality or economic status or education or how sophisticated you are, those, those things are set aside. Verse 11, this is a new humanity in Christ where there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. There are so many things that this means, but I just want us to recognize this. Your true self is a self made for community. You will not be your true self until you are in Christ being restored into a new humanity with others. Okay, second, to grow up into our true selves, we need to fight. If you look at verses five through nine, Paul is showing us what the old life, the old humanity in Adam looked like. And I think we could really sum it up like this. It's a way of living that tries to make life work without God. Paul describes it in verse five as idolatry. That is, right, centering your life or living f for something other than God. And there are all sorts of ways that we do this, that we try to make life work without God. And, and people in our world, we try to make life work without God. We try to carve out some kind of space where we can pursue happiness, some way to feel good, maybe some way to have some control and power. And you can see this, I think, even in some of the various ways that Paul lists we can seek to make life work without God, verse 5, through sex or through greed. Verse 8, through anger or aggression. Verse 9, through lying or manipulation. And the Bible makes it clear that, that these patterns and practices of the old life are still a struggle for those who are in Christ and sometimes even that struggle in like place like Galatians 5, it's, it's depicted almost like a war is going on. And I'm confident that each of us, if, if we're honest, we could probably see ourselves in these verses. And, and we know that there are ways where we continue to struggle in these ways. 
and maybe even at times feel really defeated and stuck in these ways. We know that we can be prone to perhaps sexual temptation. And so you think of pornography or, or lustful eyes or just, you know, in your thought life. We know perhaps that we can still, that we're prone to greed and covetousness. There's something about when I just keep buying stuff or getting more or, or having more or having more than others, I can feel kind of like my life works. We know that we're prone perhaps to falling into anger or rage or aggression and how we can use that to control others. We know that perhaps we slander. I mean, just the internet is such a testimony to this, right? That we can slander and degrade and use venomous language to put people in their place, to speak against those who we think are our enemies. We know that perhaps we can bend the truth manipulate things for our own benefit. And maybe at times you even feel like this is just you. This is just me. Like it's so natural for me to respond in this way, to just fall into this practice again. Maybe this is just me. And Paul would say to you, if you are in Christ, this is not you. Remember verses one through four, Christ is your life. And there is power to change because in Christ, you are a part of a new humanity, which is being renewed. And though he doesn't mention in this text, all over the New Testament, the spirit has been poured out and given to those who are in Christ. You've been raised with Christ. That's who you are. And so because of that, Paul says, put these things to death. And I think he uses maybe language that sounds really violent. I mean, it is, it is pretty violent kill these things because he knows that it's easy for us to get comfortable with the old way of life. It's easy for us to perhaps let some of these things make, make its home in our lives again. And so he says, kill it, put it to death. But consider what we've already said about community. This means that in our fight, we need each other. If you're not already doing this, I would say this text would urge us to find at least one other friend here that we can be honest with, that we can invite them to be honest with us. Where are you stuck? How is the old humanity still have a hold on you? Right, this is why we even, I mean, we gather together in Sunday morning and we gather for, for community groups and we get together for discipleship groups. We get into these spaces where relationships can develop and, and where trust can develop with one another so that we can help each other to be who we are. Discipleship group is one specific place where I think we've really tried to carve out a space in our life together as a church where we can get together in a small group of people and we can be vulnerable and we can be honest and we can ask for help and we can be there to share in one another's burdens. Because this passage, again, community, we should have a deep interest in one another growing up together. And in many ways, this kind of life that Paul describes here is so counter, you know, our cultural moment. 
It's counter relativism, which is, you know, you do you, live your truth. It's counter individualism and the privatization of the Christian life, which has little place for community and actually sharing in the mess and struggle of life together. But I think these things are actually essential for a church that's seeking to become a beautiful people in Christ that are loving the world. Let's think about our cultural moment for a while, for a little bit. You know that for a while we have lived in this experiment of what we could call hyper-individualism. That in a sense, if everyone, you know, if we just let everyone do their own thing and pursue their own happiness, whatever that means to them, then society will improve and everyone will be happier. But we're seeing various reasons why this just does not work. That relativism, just, you know, make up your own moral code, figure out what's meaningful to you, do what makes you happy, it actually doesn't lead to human flourishing in society. It breeds distrust. Various statistics and polls and studies are showing us that each generation from boomers to X to millennials to Gen Z are becoming more and more distrusting of people. A survey from 2018 reported 71%, 71% of young adults say most people would try and take advantage of you if they had the chance. The Harvard political scientist Robert Putnam argues that social trust and people's morally right action are deeply connected. We trust people when they are trustworthy. When our experience is that other people are not trustworthy, then it is this sort of disease that spreads throughout society. And of course, this makes tons of sense if you think about it, right? Because if I have to do what makes me happy and if I'm really out for myself, if that's the most important thing and if there is no truth and I'm just supposed to live into my own life of fulfillment and self-actualization and pursue my pleasures and what I want, why would you ever trust that I would be faithful to you as a friend, as a spouse, as an employee, as a neighbor or a fellow citizen? We, if we know that everyone is just out for themselves, then there is almost no reason to trust anyone anymore. Christ's beautiful church is a church that together fights against that old way of the old humanity and is being renewed in Christ together. Third, to grow up into ourselves, we need to wear Jesus. And if that sounds really weird, good, because it's intentional. It's easy to look at the verses 12 through 14 Like it's a list of, you know, generally good character qualities that regardless of your religious beliefs or whatever, you know, we should basically all just do this, right? But that's not what Paul's doing here. And we know that's not what Paul's doing because in verses 9 through 11, he's told us that we're a part of this new humanity in Christ, in this new man, and that we're being renewed in Christ. In other words, he's not telling us to just kind of pretend, dress up, and be like Jesus a little bit more. So when I was a campus minister, uh, before coming to Trinity at the University of Delaware, one year for our Halloween party, two students dressed up like Aaron and myself. 
Um, you know, she did her hair like Aaron does her hair. She had this long, I don't know what the thing that Aaron wears, if someone can correct me. She had this long flowing sweater shawl that Aaron likes to wear. And um, he had the beard and the boots and, you know, the whole kind of get up. And I remember when I walked in the room, before I knew what was going on, I thought, man, Jake looks pretty good tonight. Um, Now, the analogy with what Paul is saying here is don't dress like me, wear what I would wear, come into my house, raid my closet, and wear my clothes. Which should sound weird and a little bit too intimate. But that's kind of the point. Because if you're a Christian, you've been brought into a new humanity in Jesus. And you're united to him. And he is your life. So putting on these virtues, putting on these qualities isn't just allowed or permissible. It's actually who you are. You see, because verse 12, you belong to God as his chosen people, because you've been made holy in Jesus, because you are dearly loved, wear these things. Wear the compassion of Jesus. Or you could translate this, guts of mercy. Deep inside of you, as you live in this world with other people, with other people in their waywardness, in their confusion, in their hurt and pain, and even in their sin, wear the compassion of Jesus toward them. The compassion of Jesus that looked on you as one harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd, and he had guts of mercy toward you. Wear the kindness of Jesus Ephesians 2 tells us that, right, we were dead, we were enemies of God, we didn't love God, and we didn't want God, but he made us alive in Jesus. And he did this, Ephesians 2, 7, listen to this, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness in grace toward us in Christ. He saved us that he might just bestow riches of kindness and grace on us. Wear that kindness with others. Paul wants you to think about the gentleness of Jesus toward you and the patience of Jesus toward you. He wants, to think, he wants you to think about Jesus bearing your guilt and your sin and his death to give you forgiveness. And he wants you to wear that with one another. And verse 14, over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, interestingly, uh, in the ancient world, when Paul wrote this letter, there were other lists of virtues. This was sort of a thing that people did. They would have a list of things you shouldn't do and things you should do. But Christianity was very unique in that it held that love was the supreme virtue to bind and inform all the others together. And of course, this makes sense when you think of the story of the gospel and the life of Jesus. And there are so many places we could, you know, turn to just think about this for a moment. But I'm struck by John 13, this passage where Jesus is with his disciples hours before he's about to be taken away, tried and crucified. And the text says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart, right? He knew his death was intimate. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved you to the bitter end. All that it cost him. That's your story. And so live that. Wear the love of Jesus. 
And maybe you feel like, wow, these clothes don't really fit me. Or these are like ginormous clothes. In one sense, think of yourself like a five-year-old who puts on dad's shirt, right? These are yours. Grow up into them. This is who you are in Christ. Fourth, um, we need to practice this new life. A few years ago, I read a book on addiction that was incredibly helpful for me to think about how practices and habits shape our lives. How really, you know, our embodied existence and the things that we do all the time really order our lives around some quest that each of us have for the good life. And the author, he quotes from many different addicts and former addicts and their experience of addiction. And many of them are so insightful, but this is one of my favorites. Listen to how this person talks about addiction. Quote, even today, I vividly remember what it was like to organize my whole life around smoking. When things went well, I reached for a cigarette. When things went badly, I did the same. I smoked before breakfast after, and after a meal, when I had a drink, before doing something difficult, and after doing something difficult. I always had an excuse for smoking. Here's my favorite line. Listen to this. Smoking provided the commas, semicolons, question marks, exclamation marks, and full stops of experience. That is such a great image. I want you to think about verses 15 to 17 like punctuation marks in our life. Practices that are like these punctuation marks ordering our lives. This really flows out of verses 12 through 14 and is meant to shape our lives. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace. Now the word rule here was a word that was originally used of an umpire or an official making calls in an athletic competition. I know we have a lot of baseball fans. I don't watch a lot of baseball, but this is a shout out to our baseball fans in the audience. Imagine, right, a baseball game. You're at the game. You're in the stands. And you're all looking at this game from different vantage points and angles. And so, you know, there's a pitch that comes or there's a play at home or first base. And you all over here, you see it one particular way and over here another and kind of over here you see it another way. But it's the umpire who makes the call. What Paul is saying is, let the peace of Christ, the peace that he's already written about in chapter 1, verse 20, when he says that Jesus was reconciling all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cosmic peace that's already been won, that's already been paid for, that's already been accomplished, let that be the umpire. Let that make the call. Here's how you, how you are to live in this one body of Christ, right? Paul would not have been surprised at all that there are some times where, you know, we're like on social media and we see someone uh, who is in the larger body of Christ and they say something or write something that just fumes us. I can't believe they would say that. How ignorant. Or someone in this church does that. Someone says something that offends you. Maybe it's something political. Maybe someone uses a word for you that is just such a trigger for a whole host of other things. 
And in that moment, we're kind of tempted to live into the old humanity, the old humanity of anger and rage and slander and venom. But the question is, what makes the call? What reality gets to make the call with how you respond in that moment? What reality, what story makes the call? Paul says, the peace of Christ, let it make the call. In other words, he's saying at the center of your life, let the peace that Christ has won in your decisions, in your settling of conflicts, let it be the controlling principle inwardly and outwardly, the peace that Jesus has accomplished. And this is obviously something <laughs> that we have to practice, right? In those moments, I'm not going to respond this way. I'm not going to forward the message. I'm not going to talk about the person in this way. I'm very angry, but I'm going to let the peace of Christ make the call. I'll do these other ones a little bit uh, quicker, but verse 16, look at that, right? This is a life of regularly dwelling in the gospel story, in the message of Jesus, dwelling richly in the gospel with others. So whether that's informally, like when we're together, you know, just hanging out, maybe it's formal, like Sunday morning, community groups, discipleship groups, that in these spaces, we are teaching and being taught learning from one another, being nourished, being redirected and reshaped around Jesus together. Verse 16, spilling out from the, the riches of the gospel, we sing together. We unite our voices. We sing songs of praise that nourish us and root us in the story of Jesus. And verse 17, this is a life of ongoing prayer and thanksgiving that with whatever we're doing, I mean, that's so open, right? Paul's saying, whether you're speaking, whether you're acting, whatever you're doing, do all of it as those who are united to Christ, identified with him, living toward God with an ongoing praise and thankfulness. These are the punctuation marks of our life. Practicing peace, rehearsing the gospel story, learning from each other, singing together, living into prayer-filled thankfulness. These are the practices that help us to grow up into who we really are. Let me say as I close that this may sound like a lot. And it might sound even, I don't know, overwhelming, depending on where you are this morning. But this is God's grace to you. God loves us and he receives us as we are. We don't clean up our lives to come to God, but God loves you too much to leave you where you are. His vision for your life and for my life and for the life of this church is that we would grow up into the new humanity that we are in and through Jesus. And as we turn now to a time of Confession and prayer, I, I want you to fix your mind on the grace and the kindness of God that calls us to this new life because it is, after all, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance and turning to him.